0: Oh, a perfect song to lead into this message. I'll open with a word of prayer, and then if you would join me and open, as is your privilege, the word of God to Psalm 2, Psalm number 2. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that as we sang just now, our minds drifted up into the heavens where we saw seated at your right hand the glorious Lamb of God who came and took away the sins of this world. And you have exalted him and placed him above every other name. Under the earth, on the earth, and in the heavens, there is none greater than he, the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are willing to come that you gave amazing grace, taking upon yourself the garment of sin that we so proudly wore. And you have robed us in your own righteousness now that we can stand before the very seat of God and praise him. Thank you for that. Thank you for this people. Thank you for this day. And now, Father, we ask that you would glorify your own name and glorify your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, through the living word, which is able to save us. And I thank you that you will do that for Christ's sake. And in his name I pray, amen. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, be wise, O kings, Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Amen. So, what happens when there is no king? This thought started to come to me back in early May. Some of you may have been aware of it when King Charles of England was coronated. And as I watched the pomp and the circumstance, the ceremony, and all of the um, rites and passages of uh, things they did as the king was installed, it, it gave me an idea as I looked at that of what happens when there is no king. So in that crowd, if you watch that, there were anti-royals. So there was anti-royals in the crowd with protest signs and everything else because they don't believe um, that there should be a king. There were common citizens that, um, as members of the nation of England or the United Kingdom, um, they like to have their king. He's a figurehead. He stands in a place um, for their nation. And then there are the royalists. Um, Those are the ones who bow the knee and declare their fealty to the king. Um, But as I was watching that, I recognized that that example falls so extraordinarily short when we try to think of our king, whom we just um, sang about. Because Charles is a king like all the other nations have kings. He's just a man but what happens when there is no king? In the passage today, the psalmist is giving us two very clear pictures. The first few verses describe the nations, the nations that have their kings and how those kings react. The next few verses through verse 9 give us a different picture. And they take us into the very throne room of God, which we see clearly in Revelation 4 and 5. And they remind us that there is indeed a king. And then after hearing from the Son, the psalmist gives us a solemn warning. What do we do with these two images? So I want to describe those today And I've gotten these categories, so verses 1 to 3 describe the earthly rebellion or the natural man's response. Verses 4 to 9 display for us a heavenly reality or what the spiritual man's sight can see. And then again in the last three verses, there is the right response, which is to humble yourself before the Lord of hosts. But in those first verses, they will look familiar to any of us that live in this earth. I'm just going to walk over here. I got a little carried away with that last song, so I apologize. I thought I was over it, but probably won't be till I'm in heaven, and then I'll just do it more. So. Um, <clears throat> but as the psalmist is writing, and this calls back to the time of Israel in the time in the period of the judges, um, and the final judge being Samuel... Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth have set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, trying to break the bonds in pieces, casting away his cords. So we want to understand in the days of the Bible's time, a king, and this is where the example of King Charles fails, because in our modern understanding of what is a king, We don't really understand what it was to be a king in the time of the Bible writing. Um, A king was a sovereign. His word was absolute. There was no question. He was divinely appointed, as far as the people were concerned. He made his rules. He made his exceptions, and there was never a challenge to that king. This is the kind of kings that are all over these first couple of verses, these kings that have been self-appointed, have set themselves against the king himself, the one who gave them life, the one who gave them their kingdom, the one who gave them everything that they had, they are setting themselves against him. These kings had become, what another term you might get a little bit closer to, is little Caesars. They were little gods that controlled territories and controlled nations. And they would not be told what they were to do and not to do. So they ravaged the earth, trying to break the bonds in pieces and casting away the cords from the king who created the very earth, the very territories, and the very nations that they were put in charge of. They did not respect that there was a king. They became themselves kings. We see it in the Old Testament as we... Approach the time of the Psalms when the nation of Israel had departed out of Egypt and they were dealing with the kings of Og and Sihon, um, these other kings, the, the kings of the Canaanites who knew of this people, this Jewish people, and of this Jewish God. And yet, having known these things, they rebelled. There was a revolution against the king. And then we approach after the conquest of Cana. We see the response of the Jewish people themselves during the period of the Judges. A sad, sad story in the life of Israel. We look back on it, we read it, and we think, how could they have been that way? And you'll see if you read through the period of the Judges several times in the last several chapters, it is summarized for us, at that time, there was no king in Israel. And that is when men did what seemed right in their own sight. Because there was no king in Israel. And then we approach the time of Samuel in your Bibles. Samuel was the last of the judges. And you'll remember that the people having conquered Canaan and having been under um, the period of the judges, having now Samuel, who was a judge and a prophet, overseeing them, Samuel was getting old and moving along, and his sons who were to take his place were not fulfilling their duties, so the people cried out to Samuel, appoint for us a king like the other nations have, because we have no king. And you'll remember Samuel's response as Samuel took offense to that, but God, as he spoke to Samuel, reminded them, Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. They don't see me as their king because they are walking in the flesh. They're walking by sight and not by faith in the God who parted the Red Sea and not walking by faith in the God who had delivered them from all of their enemies all around. They wanted a king like everyone else had. They wanted a Charles, someone they could see And even after having been warned that this king would impose all of these restrictions on them, they clamored for a king when they had what they did not know they had. But we don't have that today, do we? We don't have a king in the United States. We have different kings because the natural man has... in in rebellion against God as described here by the psalmist until this day. We may not have a King Charles, but we have King, King Joe. We have King Bank Account. We have King Career. We have King Status. We have King Comfort. We have King Peace. We have all kinds of kings. And we see that in the world that we live in. When you go out these doors into your marketplaces or into your communities that you live in, you will see that there are kings all around you. Some of them are the king, um, in the summertime, the king of the walleye comes out. And he takes over households and families um, and uh, gentlemen especially that like to go out and spend all that they have, all their energies, all their times, all their talents, going out to catch that king walleye. You have men and women that have king job, that leave their children, leave their husbands, leave their wives in the pursuit of money. And that's what's described in these opening three verses. It's not just the kings that are in rebellion against God. It's the nations, the people. And it's a description that we will break his bonds. He has no authority over me. I am my king. And the psalmist is asking, why do they do this? Why is it that they would set themselves against him? Why is it that they seek out counsel together? It's because that's what comes naturally to them. And it's a description of the natural world that we live in. So if you want to know what happens when there is no king, watch the news tonight. Talk to your neighbors. Go out and sit at the mall. Live your life in this world and you will see what happens when there is no king. But the psalmist gives us a second picture in verses 4 through 9. And this is a grand picture for those that are Jesus' children, but it is a terrifying image. In verse 4, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. One of the commentators I read described the terror of having God laugh at you. The only thing that he could imagine that would be worse is the utter horror of God's frown. But the nations who rage, and we watch it on our televisions, we read it in our magazines, we see it all around us people as they plot against him. We ourselves were in this choir of people, by the way, until he reached down in his mercy and pulled us out of these pits that we dug for ourselves. As they rage against him, as these countries, China, the United States, Russia, North Korea, all of these people groups that work so hard to disavow anything to do with God, the creator, we turn our eyes to the heaven, and we see God laugh. He will hold them in derision. That's the word in the New King James. Yours may say a different thing. He will hold them in contempt. He mocks them. He ridicules them. He looks down into the affairs of these, what we would consider to be great nations, what the psalmist is seeing: the nations of Babylon, the Egyptians, all of the great nations and peoples that came, the Caesars, the Alexanders, and the Lord sits in the heaven and laughs at their futility. He is not in the slightest bit worried. Not in the slightest. He will hold them in confusion. I want to read just a little bit of what is going on in the throne room of God. This is John's description in chapters 4 and 5. I'm not going to read the entire thing. But it says that I was taken in the Spirit, and this is in chapter 4, verse 2, and behold, there was a throne set in heaven, and one sat on that throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And on those thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes. And they had crowns of gold on their head. And from the throne proceeded lightning and thunder and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before that throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal and in the midst of that throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. And skipping down to verse 8, they do not rest day or night saying, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever they cried out this message, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and they cast their crowns before the throne before the cast their crowns before the throne saying you are worthy o lord to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and they were created and then skipping into chapter 5 as John has had a breakdown because nobody could open the seals. And as he is heartbroken and, and, and crying out, he is comforted when he is told there is one who can open the seals. And so he had taken the scrolls. And they sang a new song in verse 9 of chapter 5, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And you have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousands and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. That's the picture that the psalmist is painting for us in verses 4 and 5. This is what's going on in the throne room of your God. The living creatures and the elders, all of those that are in heaven, constantly crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. and In his Appearance which can only be described in feeble human terms to try to give us a glimpse at the glorious presence that is seated on the throne. And in that picture, he looks down and he laughs at these mighty nations that are raging against him. And seated to his right is the Lamb slain before the beginnings of the world to redeem the mighty nations that are in rebellion, to redeem a people for his own sake, to redeem a people, to extend grace, to extend mercy. The only thing worse than God laughing at you is what will come in verses five and six when that laugh turns into a frown. For then he shall speak to them in his wrath and he shall distress them in his deep displeasure I have set my king on the holy hill. I have set my king. There's a picture of the Father Almighty, the Ancient of Days, who is right now sitting on his throne. And at his right hand, right now, we have a king seated next to him, whom he has exalted above all things the name that is above all names, the one who is worthy to open the seals. And he is our king. That's the image that's to come. And we hear in these next verses, verse 7 to 9, the Lord himself speaking, reminding us, the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. And I'll give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. And you will break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. This is the promise of the second coming of the Lord Jesus. He has come as the lamb. He will return as the lion. For he is Lord. He was Lord when he came the first time. He was Lord when he hung on the cross. He is Lord today. He will be Lord when he returns. And so the final warning given by the psalmist in those last few verses. Be wise. O you kings, be instructed you judges of the earth, all of you peoples, all of you great ones, all of you proud ones, all of you mighty ones, All of you rich ones, all of you intelligent ones, be wise and receive instruction. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and serve the Lord with fear. This is the message that is lost in today's evangelical circle. Serve the Lord with fear. You'll notice that's what comes first. Why? Because he is to be feared. Do not fear the man that can take your life. Fear the one who holds your soul in his hand. Fear the one who holds all of eternity in his hand. Fear the one who will be your judge. Fear the one who has all power. Feel the one who is all holy. Feel the one who is all truth. Fear fear the one who is all love. Serve him with fear. Do not store up for yourself wrath in the day of judgment, for one day that day will surely come. And rejoice with trembling. Isn't that an interesting play? Serve him with fear and rejoice with trembling. We tremble at the presence of God. We are too campy with our God. In his presence, we will fall on our faces when we see just a glimpse of how holy he really is. But we rejoice that we're his with trembling because even in our salvation, we still recognize there's still a part of us yet to be redeemed, yet to be made pure. And he's going to finish that work. But we tremble at the mighty power of God. And we tremble for those who have rejected him. We tremble for the nations that are raging. We tremble for the people that are plotting a vain thing because it is a horrible thing to fall into the hand of a holy God. But that's the instruction there to receive. That's the wisdom that we're to receive. Serve him with fear. Rejoice with trembling. And then in verse 12, kiss the son. Now that's the New King James Version. If you're looking in your Bible, it may say some different words. Kiss the son. So there is fear, there is rejoicing, there is trembling, and now we are to embrace our king, to worship him to bow down before him, to come to his feet and look into his beautiful face and to kiss him with a holy kiss, to receive him with joy, to receive him with gladness, to receive his commandments with great gratitude. So it's not just fear, it's love. Love the Son. You can do it because God first loved you, as Jody reminded us. So we kiss the Son. And why do we kiss the Son? Why do we embrace Him? Lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, when His wrath is kindled but a little. All authority has been given to me by my Father on heaven, on in heaven and on earth, and under the earth. And there is a day appointed where I will be the judge. This is the Son. This is Jesus, the long, blonde, flowing-haired, blue-eyed guy that everybody loves. When he comes, he is going to be the judge of all mankind. So kiss him while you can. Embrace his commandments. Embrace his precepts. Do what he has said out of love for him and fear for who he is, lest he become angry. And then that final promise. Blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. Not most of those, all of them. Blessed are those who put their trust in Him. And so the psalmist gives us these two images. He gives us a, a, an image of the natural world that we see. It was, for me this morning in our Sunday school class, it was so edifying that we were all sitting there and we were talking about how easy it is to get drawn into this first picture. It's so easy. Why? Because it appeals to our natural man. All day long, when you go out tomorrow, when you go out uh, Tuesday, when you go out Wednesday, you're going to see pictures and images and ideas presented to you that are going to reinforce all of the natural things that you are inclined to be drawn to. So you have all of this stuff coming into you from outside. You have a natural propensity within yourself apart from the grace of God, apart from the mercy of God, apart from the Holy Spirit of God who indwells you. When left for one moment to yourself, you will will just incline yourself to run right into that sin. That picture is there and it's put before you every day. Satan knows exactly what he's doing. He works throughout the earth. He raises up nations. He raises up rulers just as he has throughout this Bible. He corrupts them. God knows. He's sitting up in heaven laughing at them because they think they're actually going to get something accomplished. That's that picture that we need to cling to, that this holy God is not worried about what the LGBTQI plus Community is trying to get done. He doesn't care about woke politics. He doesn't care. He's God. He said it's sin, it's sin. The world can rage against him all they want. They can try to break the bonds all they want. They can try to cast away the cords all they want. He holds them in derision and contempt. That Think about that. If God was sitting up in heaven, holding you in contempt, ridiculing you, mocking you, the God of all creation, but that's what's going on. That's the images, the world raging and in rebellion, thinking in some way they can accomplish something. We often say, I've heard it, several of you, and I've thought it myself how can Satan be so actively trying to usurp the Lord? He knows he's lost, but he's still going to use every ounce of energy he has to try to undo the work of God. And that's the picture we have. The nations raging, the people plotting vain things, kings setting themselves up, rulers taking counsel together, putting together conglomerations of other kingdoms, the G7, the G23, the G57, whatever they're called, all of these worldly nations thinking, if we can just get these two nations together, we can overcome. That's the way the natural man works. That's the natural man's picture. That's the psalmist's picture. And he asks, why don't they know? And then he gives us this picture, this reality that is going on, that we have a king that is seated on his throne. He is our soon coming king. But he is our current reigning king. He was the king before we ever existed. He was the king before this earth ever existed. He will be the king long after it's gone. He is not a king that comes and goes. So what do you do with this? What are you gonna do with this? Two images. An image of the world and an image of heaven. One that you can see with your eyes, one that you can touch with your fingers, one that you can read about, one that you can experience and one that you can't see other than the eyes of faith, other than the Holy Spirit bringing to life this word. You can't see the throne room of God. It's not visible to you. So you have an image that you can feel and touch, that you can hold, and you have an image that you can look forward to with the sight of God. Which are you gonna choose? What are you going to choose tomorrow morning when you get out of bed? Are you going to live like there is no king? Plenty of warnings in there about that. Proverbs 14, a verse that was very um, instrumental in God's opening my eyes. Proverbs 14, 12. Men will do what seems right to them, though its end is the way of death. There is a way that seems right. It'd be easy for us if it seemed wrong, but it seems so right. But its end is the way of death. If you live as if there is no king, you will be like the Israelites in the, in the book of Judges. When there is no king in Israel, men will do what is right in their own sight. Do you won't remember that God flooded the earth when men had nothing in his heart but evil? And God purged the earth and saved a remnant. If you live as if there is no king, you'll be just like the nation of Israel was in the time of Samuel. After having Cana delivered to them, having been rescued from the Egyptians, having seen great signs and great wonders, the walls of Jericho falling down, the very next generation forgot all of it. And they went on living as if there was no king. And then after David um, came and became his king and his son Solomon came in, nothing changed. They had earthly kings. They trusted David. David was the greatest king, the forerunner, the, the covenant made with the house of David that his throne will last forever. And it will because there was a king that would come. But even in David's greatness, David was a man who fell in sin. Solomon was a man who was given the wisdom of God like no other man before or since. And Solomon fell. And his kingdom was split when Rehoboam and Jeroboam went after each other. Because men are going to clamor for a king like the rest of the world has. We want a king we can see. I need a Donald Trump to blame for all the woes of this world. I need a Donald Trump that is going to enlist my children in the military that is going to tax me to provide for me. That's what the world does. Or maybe you'll live as if there is no king like described by Paul in the opening chapter of Romans, and you'll make for yourselves kings of wood and stone or money or security or status. Jesus warns us in Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve two masters. There cannot be two kings. Or will you choose to humble yourself? Will you come like a child, as we talked about this morning in our Sunday school class? Will you humble yourself as a child and call out to Jesus? the one that God has appointed as his king? Will you humble yourself? Will you recognize that you are unable to accomplish this? Are you willing to look to the Father in heaven and admit that he's right and you're not? That he's wise and you're not? That he's love and you're not? There is a sovereign God that is enthroned in heaven. And he has given his king, placed him on the holy hill of Zion. And in his king's name, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Even those who are going to perdition. And this king has been granted all authority over mankind. Not just in the last days when he comes, but today. He is currently seated on his throne. And he's looking down to see, are there any who seek him? He desires to save all who will call upon his name. His father desires that all should be saved. He is interceding for you this morning as you sit here with his Father. And God has appointed a day that he is going to return and receive the promise in verses 8 and 9 that he will receive as his own possession the ends of the earth and the nations. And on that day, he will come as the judge. And he will rightly judge all of mankind, some to receive eternal rest and some to be sentenced to eternal separation and condemnation. And then will come that great day that's described in the chapters at the end of Revelation when the Lord Jesus Christ, our great King, will bring us forward with the throngs and throngs and the multitudes from every nation, tribe, and tongue and say, Father, here is your people. Which are you going to choose? Which picture will you choose? Will you be the blessed one who put your trust in him? Or will you be the one who rages with the nations, plotting your vain schemes, working towards the things that rust and pass away? Today is the day to make a choice, and your decision matters. Father, I want to thank you for this day. I want to thank you for the psalmist who reminds us that you are sitting on your throne in glory, that all of the triflings that go on in this earth, that, that Father, terrify us, they scare us, they sway us, They make us feeble in our faith. They make us anxious for our future. Father, help us to remember that you are seated in the heavens laughing because you are greater than all of these things. Help us to remember to look into your holy face, to see the love of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who emptied himself of all of that glory to redeem us and to robe us in his righteousness. Help us to go out from this place and make a decision at this day and every day to kiss the sun, to serve you with fear and to rejoice in trembling as we see your mighty hand working in this world. Help us to draw people to your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as you use us as vessels for your own righteousness. Help us to present an image of his holiness, of his glory of his kindness, of his love, of his mercy, of his grace and his loving kindness as he stretched out his arms and called for all of those to come and receive rest. Help us to be the church that cries out that there is a king and that they don't have to live in a world that doesn't have one. And I thank you that you'll do that today and every day forever. And you do it for your own name's sake and for the sake of your son. Amen.